So we're back in the Ten Commandments today, and actually, this is going to be the last in our series. Uh, so we've Ten Commandments in five weeks, uh, and we're going we're gonna to pick up the pace somewhat this week over the last few, and we're actually going to do six to ten all in one hit. Um, and, and I hope that it will be apparent as to why I've chosen to do that as we go today. So we're going to read, we're going to jump straight in at Exodus chapter 20 uh, from verse 13 through 17. If you've got a Bible, I'd encourage you to open it uh, and read along, or maybe if it's on a phone or tablet or something, get it up there. Uh, and failing that, the words will be on the screen behind me. Let's read together, shall we, from Exodus 20. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. I'm going to pray quickly and then we're going to begin to unpack this together. Lord, we thank you for your word, as Chris has already prayed. Lord, I ask, would you help us to, to see and hear and understand what you would want to speak to us through your word this afternoon. Holy Spirit, would you help it to take root in our hearts and lives for your glory, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Good. Well, there is, as you will have noticed, a real breadth to these last five commandments. And there's a lot we could get into. Like, I mean, there is a lot. <laughs> we could easily have spent a week or more on each of these. Uh, but I've chosen to, to bring them together today because there is a common thread to all of them, which I hope as we dig in together, we're going to see and understand today. But I think for the most part, I'd be on fairly safe ground in saying it'd be pretty well agreed upon that these are good instructions from God. So we said at the start of this series that, that the Ten Commandments were not given to somehow restrict or inhibit our freedom, but a gift from a gracious Father to show us what it looks like to enjoy the freedom that we have in Him. A, a pathway, as it were, that shows us what it looks like to live the good life as we were created. And I don't think many of us would quibble with the wisdom and the benefit of these five commandments. Would we? Like, there's not many people who you will find who would say, that's outrageous. No, I think everyone should go around murdering. Or like... That's outrageous. Adultery should be just all the time, everywhere. People wouldn't use those words and think about it in that way on the whole. But it's interesting, though, that these are the commandments that traditionally have been thought of as the thou shalt nots. And they are the ones that actually lots of people through history have thought of as God being some kind of killjoy, and they would want to caricature Christianity and caricature God as somehow an oppressive killjoy who just wants to wag his finger and say, thou shalt not, you shouldn't, no. 
but we're going to dig in. Because I think, as we've said, murder, adultery, theft, and coveting or jealousy are not generally seen as good things, for good reason, because these things don't result in human flourishing, do they? They don't, okay? <laughs> Hopefully you don't need that spelling out. So the way we're going to approach this is we're going, to, we're going to go through one after another. We're going to look at what the commandment is. And then rather than looking at what that prohibits, because I think that A, we could spend ages on the breadth of that, and B, um, most of them are pretty actually self-explanatory, um, unless we're going to really borrow down. We're going to look at the, the heart behind why we might break those commands and how we might break those commands. And hopefully as we do that, we're going to see a common thread that will bring us to a point of saying, Lord, we need your help in this. And so we're going to dig in on each one and see how we might respond today. The first, you shall not murder. Now, I'd imagine, as we've said, that we could all agree in this room that murder is wrong. And most of us haven't attempted it. In fact, I would hope that no one here has. But I don't know that for sure, right? What I do know, interestingly, though, is that the majority of people, if they're honest, have found themselves thinking about killing someone else at some point in their lives, just entertaining the notion. We're not going to get into the reasons that murder is wrong, though there are many, many reasons that we could find from Scripture as well as from common sense. But why do people do it? And, and why do many of us, at some point in our lives, find ourselves contemplating it? Well, in general, it's because we harbor a belief that... There is a problem, either personal or corporate, communal, that would be solved by killing that person. Okay? Say that again. The reason, by and large, that murder is a thing is that people believe that there is a problem, either personal or communal, that would be solved by killing that person. There is something that would be made better from the killer's perspective, if that person were dead. Often a personal feeling that you've been wronged in some way and that that person needs to be made to pay for the wrong that you have felt. Now Jesus takes this command of you shall not murder a a good step further. I'm sure many of you have read this, but in a section of teaching found in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said this to those who were gathered around listening to him from Matthew 5, 21. He says, you have heard it said, or you have heard that it was said to those of old, and he now references the Ten Commandments, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Jesus takes it a whole step further and says, it's not just the action, 
It's the heart attitude towards your brother. It's the, the contemplation of it. It's not harboring anger. What's Jesus saying here? He's saying any sense of, I'll get them for that. I'll pay them back. I'll, I'll make them pay for doing that to me or to them. And it has the same root in our hearts as the act of murder, which is why Jesus takes it there, because he wants to address our hearts, which is where our behavior ultimately stems from. It's the idea in our hearts that in some way we believe that getting even will in some way make things better for us. There's a kind of catharsis to this, like I would feel better if they could be made to pay for what they've done. But, but it doesn't actually work. <laughs> In fact, research shows that people who harbor anger towards others and who dwell on the idea of getting even actually end up in the long term feeling worse. Like it, it just chews you up inside. In one study, participants were provoked with criticism, so deliberately wound up, and then asked to hit a punch bag while thinking of the person who criticized them. So there was an immediate physical, like, take it out, get even with them for what they said. Relative to a control group who sat quietly after facing criticism, the punchers felt even more upset after they'd finished letting out. Isn't that interesting? Dwelling on the thought, harboring it, fueling it in action. I'll get them for what they did to me. Actually made them feel worse. The lie we believe is that it will help us, that it will solve a problem, but it doesn't. And, and the heart issue underlying it is that our happiness or our peace or our satisfaction or security has become tied in some way to someone else being made to pay for what they did. Interesting. What about the next one? From verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. This was another one that Jesus took and kind of upped a notch. And so we're going to jump straight into what Jesus said in Matthew 5 about this. He said, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, and you can flip that the other way round too, okay? So ladies, you don't just kind of get off. It's like everyone who looks at the member of the opposite sex or even the same sex with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Again, it's not just the act, that's the issue here. What's underneath it? Well, what's, what is underneath it? So belief, firstly, that that person is there for my pleasure which is not actually why they were created, created in God's image for God's glory, not for you to objectify. So that's the first issue. But there's also 
a belief that an intimate, emotional, or sexual relationship with that person will make me feel a way in which I think I need to feel, or even that I think I deserve to feel. It's the belief that having them will make me feel secure or special, approved of, important, loved. That there is some felt need in you that you think will be met or solved by an intimate emotional or sexual relationship with that person. Similar to the first one, right? The heart issue here. It, it rings the same. Your happiness, peace, security, value, comfort rests on getting what you think you need from that other person. What about the next one? From verse 15 You shall not steal. Again, this one generally doesn't get a lot of pushback in society. Like most people are agreed that theft is wrong. And as with the others, there's, there's loads we could get into. You have to forgive me for, for going through these quickly. It's because there's this overarching narrative that I think we need to grasp hold of today. Because I think when we assess, again, the heart attitude that underlies and sits behind theft, by and large, is, is broadly the same again. It's a belief that I want or need that possession, that thing, to such an extent that I'm prepared to take it from someone else, to deprive them of it in order to meet my felt need. It's the selfish belief that thinking having that thing will satisfy my need to such an extent that I'm prepared to deprive someone else of it in order that I might have it. The need that I believe will be met in me for whatever I think that thing will bring me Pleasure, comfort, security, joy, whatever it might be. It's a selfish motive. <laughs> What's happening in our hearts is that we're saying, I'm more important than that person who I'm going to take it from. And my happiness or comfort is dependent on getting that thing. You see how these commandments start to tie together. It keeps going. What about the next one from verse 16? You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Now, just we've got to understand a little bit of context. This isn't just simply lying. It sounds strange, doesn't it? It's like a kind of court language. And essentially it is. So, for someone to face charges, for a charge to be brought against someone, it would have to be on the strength of two or three 
witnesses. And so, in context, what is being said here is, if, if you're called as a witness against your neighbor, don't do it if you can't be completely full of integrity in that. It's a command about lying specifically about another person. And in the context, it's either blaming them for something they haven't done or claiming they've done something that they haven't done. Okay? That's essentially what's being talked about. It's lying about someone else, blaming them for something they haven't done or claiming they have done something that they, in fact, haven't. Why? Why would you do that? Well, perhaps to cover for your own sin, your own error. Ah, (laughs) I can blame it on them. And if there's someone else who can blame it on them too, then I get off. Why would we do it? What's the heart underneath it? We lie because we want something that we might not get if we tell the truth. Or because we believe we need what we might lose if we tell the truth. That's, that's why we lie. <laughs> okay, We lie, we would break this commandment because we want something that we might not get if we tell the truth or because we're afraid we will lose something that we believe we need if we tell the truth. That, that doesn't just need to be material. That could be credibility, position, the, the favor of people. If they really knew the truth about me, then I would lose their approval. So I lie in order to maintain that. Yeah? Or... I cannot bear the prospect of losing this job, this position, this relationship, whatever it might be. And so you lie in order to keep that thing that you're, you believe you need and that you're scared of losing if you tell the truth. Does that make sense? Yeah? So again, what's happening here in our hearts? We believe that our happiness or our peace, or our satisfaction is dependent on having what we might lose if we tell the truth. We tie our contentedness, our security to something to such an extent that we would break this commandment in order to keep it. Finally, from verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. That generally leads to adultery, but this is pulling it back a notch. Or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. I mean, essentially, this is looking at someone else's life, and instead of being pleased for them... It's wanting it for yourself. It's looking at what someone else has, the relationships they have, the home they have, 
the job they have, the position they have, the possessions they have, and believing that if you had that too, then you'd be happy. You'd be content. You'd be fulfilled. You'd be satisfied. It might not result in the same action as theft, although it does in some cases, but it's the same issue in our hearts. And actually, it just leaves us in a mess. A quote that says, comparison is the thief of joy. See, when we spend our time looking at what someone else has and wanting that for ourselves instead of being content with what we have, the whole time we're doing it, we never be content. We, we, we won't experience joy, just frustration. You know, essentially, the whole advertising industry is predicated on the idea of breaking this commandment, 17. It's, it's built on this idea. So, so God says, don't cover anything of your neighbors, someone else's. And advertisers go, we, we are going to do everything we can to, to make you covet. <laughs> because that's how we can sell you stuff. <laughs> so they show you people enjoying experiences and relationships or property in such a way to get you to think, I want that. If I had that, I'd be as happy as those people on the advert. And when you say it like that, it sounds stupid. But we're all suckers for it. That's why they do it, because it works. Like we've had this conversation with our children. And you think, on, on the surface, it seems so obvious. Put an attractive person having a good time in a place or with a particular product. And... At a subconscious level, we covet. <laughs> we go, yeah, like I, I, would, I would be as good looking and as happy as them if I had that thing. <laughs> like none of us are stupid enough to say it out loud. But we buy into it. We buy into it all the jolly time. And let's be real, out of all of these five commandments, this is a really tough one. But the root in our hearts is precisely the same as the rest. All of the things that we're told not to do in these commandments have the same root which in the end bears fruit in our lives and stops us from living the good life. And that lie that our hearts so readily believe and chase after is a belief that our happiness or peace or contentment rests on what we do or do not have. And it's a lie. But it's a battle that all of us face. Even when we can step back from it and see that actually these things don't lead to human flourishing. Like we can see that, that anger, harboring anger towards others, malice, 
towards others, being jealous of what they have, wanting it for ourselves to such an extent that we're prepared to try and take it. Adultery that just rips apart families. And yet, we face this battle. Here's the problem. This is why we do it. If I can quote Bruce Springsteen. (laughs) See, one of his songs, and he absolutely hit the nail. I'm not a massive Bruce Springsteen fan, but I just think he hit the nail on the head when he sang, Everybody's Got a Hungry Heart. Everybody's got a hungry heart. See, every day when we wake up, we wake up hungry and thirsty. Physically, yes, but spiritually and emotionally too. And we head out into our day hungry and thirsty, looking for things to fill us up. And that leads us to coveting and lying and lusting after things, hoping that they will fill us up, hoping that they will satisfy us. But they don't, do they? And so we keep going, and we keep going on this treadmill. They don't, because the things we end up pursuing don't endure. Many of them don't even last a few years before they wear out and need replacing. Or there's a newer model. We get bored of them. We want the novelty. We try to pretend it isn't so, but we see this all the time, right? And as we go through this cycle of trying to fill up, we're searching Searching for meaning and satisfaction, fulfillment, contentment, peace. But it never truly comes. We imagine that it's possible. And at times, we fool ourselves into thinking that we've found it, that we've done it. We make believe that that car or that house or that new phone or that relationship that job, a promotion, will make all the difference. That if we could travel to the place we want to, or conquer the wall we've always wanted to climb, then, then, then. But what happens? What happens when we do? I mean, you guys have experienced this. What happens when we do? For a moment, we fool ourselves. We've, we've done it. <laughs> I'm happy. <laughs> I'm satisfied. I'm content. <laughs> the relationship is working. It's bringing what I thought it was going to. But it doesn't last. It brings us a moment or two of pleasure. A hit of dopamine, a feeling of success, a rush of adrenaline. A distraction from the treadmill, escapism, just for a while. Things seem new, but soon enough, they seem old again. And the quest begins again. The cycle continues. Everybody's got a hungry heart. 
No sooner have you made a change to your circumstances than you realize you need to change something else. Come on, guys. (laughs) You know this to be true. (laughs) You know it to be true for yourselves. If you stop and allow yourself to consider it, you know it to be true. And as we do, each one of us finds ourselves breaking God's holy law. Failing to enjoy the good life that he's called us into. But there is another way. There's another way. St. Augustine said this of God. He said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. The truth is, is God has put a longing in our hearts that cannot be satisfied by anything or anyone other than him and who he is for eternity. (laughs) When we take these things under the sun that we can see and touch and smell and taste and hear, and we build our lives on them and the pursuit of them, then we are in for a life of frustration and restlessness. Because we, we try and make ultimate things out of them. We ask them to, to do something for us which they can't do. We ask them to bear the weight of our hope and they are simply not substantial enough to do that. We build our lives on them and place our identity in them and they don't last. And when they don't last, we end up feeling lost. Groping around in the mist. Lying, cheating, lusting, stealing, trying to find something else to pin our identity on. Maybe to be the smartest or the richest or the one with the latest tech the nicest house, the best-looking partner. They're not evil things. In fact, also those are good things. It's like it's good to be married to someone who you find attractive and you enjoy spending time with. That's a good gift. It's good to use your intellect that God's given you. It's not wrong to have a good job. It's a good thing. In their right and proper place, they're gifts to be enjoyed. But they're not ultimate. When we place our security, or our comfort, or our happiness, or our identity on having them, it just doesn't work. They can't bear the weight we try to place on them. We need to build our lives, our identity on something altogether more sure, altogether more steadfast, altogether more enduring. That's what Jesus came to bring us. He came to bring us this rest. He came to bring us back into right relationship with God. In John 10.10, Jesus said that he had come that we might have life. And life in all its fullness, really living the good life, not just existing, both now and for eternity. You were made 
for eternity with God. Your heart will be restless until you find your rest in him. Until you look to him and him alone to satisfy you. Until you look to him and him alone for your identity. Until you look to him and him alone for your peace and joy and security. Until you do that, you're going to be restless frustrated and you're going to keep breaking these final five commandments so the promise of eternity secured for us by Jesus at the cross is our true rest our true rest that allows us to make sense of this life and experience true contentment here and now whether we have or don't have The Apostle Paul wrote about this in Philippians chapter 4. If you've got your Bible, why don't you turn there with Philippians 4 from verse 12. Paul says this, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance, and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The secret of being content in any and every situation. Like Paul had gone through (laughs) highs and lows like most of us just can even begin to think of been shipwrecked, imprisoned, beaten, had the adulation of people. Like he, he, he was like a Jew of Jews. He was esteemed as an <laughs> incredible, upright man before he came to faith. <laughs> he had the praise of people. He'd experienced highs and lows. He knew what it, has to, what it was to have an abundance and what it was to have nothing. And in all of it, he said he'd learned the secret of being content. How? How was Paul content? He, Paul's contentment was Christ. He had experienced more ups and downs than you probably ever will. But his hope... And happiness and security didn't rest on those things. What's your hope, happiness, and security resting on? Where are you trying to find contentment? Finding your identity in the finished work of Jesus, in what he's done and who he says you are, frees you to live the way you were designed, frees you to live the good life, Finding your identity and your security in him and what he's done for you brings true freedom. It's the secret of contentment. Morning by morning, day by day, coming to him. Remembering the hope we have. The life which we have through his death and resurrection. When we find our identity in Christ rather than just what others say about us, 
when we root it in him rather than the praise of people, then we can know real peace. When you find your identity in Jesus rather than your possessions or your position and how that makes you feel, then you really can find peace. Because whether you have a little or a lot, it doesn't define you anymore. Whether you ever make it in the eyes of people or not doesn't matter because you're fully known and fully loved by him. Your present hope doesn't rest on external circumstances but on your eternal destination. And as you live in the good of that, you're freed to live the good life. You're freed to live the good life. Money can just be money. You don't feel like you have to have it for status or power or position. Which means you can use it for God's glory and the good of others. You can give it away or spend it without worrying. You're free. Money isn't your master. It doesn't own you. You're not looking for it to fulfill you in some way. Your job can just be a job. It doesn't define you. You can be diligent at it. You should work diligently at it to the best of your ability. But succeed or fail, it doesn't define you. Whether you get the promotion or not, it's not where your identity rests. You're free to live the good life. Secure in Him. Relationships no longer need to be about meeting some need in us or making us feel a certain way. Which means we can really love others with sincerity and generosity instead of selfishness. When we're not looking for relationships to try and meet some felt need in us, then actually we can approach them with selflessness and generosity. We can get into relationships with other people out of how we can love and serve them, how we can care for them. Sounds like my... No, it's back on. It just ducked out for a moment. <laughs> and we can be really honest. We can be really honest. Because we're not worried about what we might lose if we tell the truth. Godliness with contentment is great gain indeed. This is the good life the good life here for us to enjoy in Jesus. I want to invite you to enjoy the good life today. <laughs> to enjoy the freedom of not placing your hope in these other things. I want to unburden you of the lie <laughs> that having that thing or that relationship or that status will fulfill you. It won't. It won't. Only Jesus will do that.
And so I want to lead us in, in praying and responding to this. But I want to suggest that some of us, I, I would guess I can maybe make that more universal, <laughs> that all of us in some way need to repent before we come to communion today of ways in which actually we've believed that lie and consequently we've broken these, these commandments. We've failed to enjoy the good life that God's laid out for us. Instead of living in the good of what Jesus has done for us, instead of placing our hope and identity and finding our contentment in him, we've begun to pursue these other things. We've gone through life trying to fill up these other things. I want to pray for us. I invite you to join me in that. And then Chris is going to come and lead us. In.